Excerpt from The Real Story Behind the Wonder Woman Who Wasn't by Gary L. Thompson, published in the June 15th, 1983 issue of Amazing Heroes, number 25. The real point here is to take a hard look at why the modern Wonder Woman seems to be much closer to an ordinary woman than Wonder. No one can deny the basic stature of the character. Charles Moulton Marston suggested one day, why not a woman superhero? And was told in return, it can't be done. Virtually every other female superdoer of that decade eventually proved Moulton's naysayers right. But Moulton's own creation, ah, that was quite another story. Not only did Wonder Woman thrive, but she ranks with Superman and Batman as the only DC characters that gain their own entire families of magazines to survive the golden age in their own titles and to make the home screens in their own TV series. And she accomplished all this as an honest-to-goodness total original. A great many superheroines are spin-offs, but Wonder Woman was the model for spin-offs like Wonder Girl and Nubia. Truly, she ranks as the first lady of all comicdom. However, over the past decade or two, Wonder Woman has been showing ominous signs of slipping from her traditional status as DC's number three superhero. Her storylines, characterizations, settings, and supporting casts shifted as often as the weather. All these efforts eventually met with only indifferent sales in return. In Wonder Woman number 269, the editors admitted that a strong increase in that magazine's sales would be necessary for them to grant readers demands for a sensation revival. But if one wants to see evidence of the Amazon's downfall, one has but to compare the directions Wonder Woman has taken in the past decade with those taken by Superman and Batman over the same period. In the Superman titles, Lois Lane and Clark Kent actually had a brief fling together. Lois and Lana Lang crossed swords again before Lois emerged a clear question mark victor. And Lois and Superman settled into a new, if superficial, intimacy. With Batman, the unprecedented happened. Batman fell in love with Silver Saint Cloud, a relationship as intense as it was brief. This was promptly followed by a precarious relationship threatened by rival Sallies, from Talia to Vicky Vale, knee powers. In sad contrast, Diana was not even able to keep her true love, for that matter, her love life in general, alive. Both Superman and Batman have faced a dazzling array of foes the past decade. Old, new, revived, and revised. Diana's writers thought so little of Wonder Woman's own rogues gallery. Members of this vast and bizarre group were seen more often in the pages of Super Friends and Justice League of America than in Wonder Woman that any old villain used, besides an unrecognizable Angleman, invariably were borrowed from the rose galleries of other superheroes, although one hopes the recent appearances of Doctors Cyber and Psycho are a sign that the trend is being reversed. Is it any wonder that Superman and Batman continue to hold down entire families of books, while Wonder Woman suffers such indignities as the suggestion that the Huntress is the real star of the Wonder Woman book? Has no one ever attempted to fathom the reasons behind Wonder Woman's original appeal? Far from it. Juanita Coulson quotes Moulton from the American Scholar, It's smart to be strong, but it's sissified, according to masculine rules, to be tender, loving, affectionate, and alluring. And that's the point. Not even girls want to be girls so long as our feminine archetypes lack force, strength, and power. Women's strong qualities have become despised because of their weakness. The obvious remedy is to create a feminine character with all the strength of a Superman, plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman. Gloria Steinem said in her introduction to Wonder Woman, her creator had seen straight into my heart and understood the secret fears of violence hidden there. No longer did I have to pretend to like the pow and crunch style of Captain Marvel and Green Hornet. Here was a heroic person who might conquer with force, but only a force tempered with love and justice. She converted her enemies more often than not, and if they were destroyed, they did it to themselves, usually in some unbloody accident. Moulton's wife was quoted in Secret Origins of the Super DC Heroes as saying, he, Moulton, was expressing a fundamental psychological doctrine. It wasn't just another action comic. Wonder Woman would battle people, but she would never control people. She didn't pound them. Never. Excerpt from Amazing Heroes number 62, January 1st, 1985, the 1985 preview issue, Wonder Woman. The first two issues of 85 will be by current writer Dan Mishkin. After that, Mindy Newell will take over the scripting reins. Editor Alan Gold says, I think because of Mindy's interest, the book is going to focus very much on characterization. Newell will tie up many of the plot lines Mishkin had opened, such as the Gremlin subplot, an impending scandal involving General Darnell, and details regarding secondary characters. A war in Central America that was only briefly touched on in 84 will get much attention in 85. Newell and Gold are also in the process of trying to create 
create a really formidable new villain for Wonder Woman, something they feel that she's never really had. The change in writers will bring a new tone to the book, but Newell does not plan any dramatic changes in the title, at least not in her first year writing the series. Excerpt for the Amazing Heroes preview special, Summer 1985. Mindy Newell and Don Heck remain the regular creative team on Wonder Woman, but since the book is bi-monthly, long-range plans haven't been made. It takes a long time for what we have planned just to get going, says editor Alan Gold. Coming up in the immediate future is a tie-in with Christ on Infinite Earths that involves the demise of Tezcatlipoca, the demigod seen in recent issues. He's right in the middle of the crazy weather, causing all sorts of trouble, says Gold. The storyline also picks up the plotline with General Darnell and Senator Jacoby's investigation, after which nothing in Diana's life will be the same again, swears Gold. And I don't think we'll be killing all Steve Trevor for quite a while. A letter written by Gina L. Dart of Nova Scotia, Canada, printed in the May 1985 cover dated Wonder Woman number 325. Dear Sirs, oh boy, oh boy, you really did it this time. Here I was, hoping in all innocence that Wonder Woman would finally get on track, that continuity would finally make some sort of sense in this poor, sorry book. I should have known better. Everybody knows that this book is one that is foisted on writers who then whip the stories together after they finish the stuff they really enjoy doing. I imagine in Michigan's case, it's, it's, it's the gulp blue devil. Sorry guys, but I'm really disappointed. I expected better of the whole thing. I guess I should have realized that Wonder Woman's continuity is so messed up no one could fix it short of killing Diana off and starting with another Amazon but come on Gina then went on for two and a quarter columns of the Wonder Woman's letters page her many grievances with the run of Dan Mishkin this was followed with the rest of the page being filled with a reply from Alan Gold the editor of the book defending Mishkin as a fan of the character and somebody who puts in hard work on the title and had been for several years on the next page Gold began welcoming our new storyteller Mindy Newell he mentioned this is in part to dispute a fan theory that George Perez would take over writing and drawing the book or as he put it as for George Perez's drawing this comic well he was just ventilating a long-held desire of his it's not something he could possibly get to in the near future besides I'm not sure I'd gladly be a party to asking Mindy and Don to give up their assignment for anyone even a recognized comic superstar in the next issue blurb he adds Mindy Newell starts on what should be a long and interesting run on this book her first effort is called Tropidor Heat some of you might remember a bit of subplotting left hanging a while back well Mindy and Don bring us back to Central America where Keith Griggs and his new partner are in a lot of very hot water See you in two months, pointing out that Wonder Woman at that point in time was published on a bi-monthly schedule. Now to explain these references, Major Keith Griggs was created in Wonder Woman number 301, and he was sort of a cross between Steve Lombard and Lana Lang. He was basically a rival for Steve Trevor as both General Darnell's favorite agent for special missions and a alternate love interest for Diana Prince. In the issue in question, Wonder Woman number 326, covered dated July 1985, Keith Griggs was paired with Lieutenant Lauren Haley on a special covered assignment. Haley had been created in this issue and would be featured for the rest of the very short lifespan of the run of the original series of Wonder Woman. General Darnell had basically got himself tangled up in a prototype for the Iran-Contra affair. He was against the orders of Congress and the President supplying arms to a revolutionary by the name of Montez. Things had gone terribly awry and the bodies were starting to pile up. Griggs and Haley ended up teaming with a couple of reporters and the whole lot of them got captured by Montez. They were then taken to an Aztec altar. They looked just like new with the intention of their being sacrificed to the god Tezcatlipoca. Major Diana Prince became aware of this covert mission and recognizing the peril it put her commanding officer in, traveled to the South American country of Tropidor to try to clean up the mess. This was Minnie Newell's first issue. It was a real slog. Part of it, I'm sure, is that she's having to deal with a ton of subplots left over from the outgoing writer. That's not her fault. Just like having to deal with a skinny, sad sack at a candy isn't her fault, but she still writes her really, really badly. It's just like this crazy, 
hysterical person. There's also a subplot where Hippolyta, after having lost favor with Diana over some shenanigans she got up to and not talking with her daughter anymore, was so depressed that she was neglecting her queenly duties. And so the Amazon Senate were discussing replacing her by force if necessary. There was a subplot introduced on the tail end of Michigan's run involving a reporter named Lisa Abernathy, who's breaking off her secret affair with the Senator Brad Covington, in part because General Darnell's affairs were about to come to light and she didn't want to get dragged into that scandal. It's all just so painfully melodramatic and super duper talky. Very inauspicious beginning of the run. From there, we move on to the September 985 cover dated Wonder Woman number 327, billed as a special crisis crossover. The story is a world in chaos and it's much more action oriented, actually a little too action oriented because a lot of what's happening is confusing. Like Wonder Woman's flying to South America and she gets caught in some red skies action as part of the Christ on Infinite Earths and almost loses control of her plane. But I thought in the previous issue she'd already arrived in the country and, you know, I just, I don't, I wasn't sure how we got from one place to the next. Diana manages to arrive at the Aztec Temple, which looks like new because apparently time has rolled backwards and there's some question about whether it's the crisis that's caused this to happen or if it's Tezcatlipoca. And there's a point where Griggs is wrestling with a gun of one of the reporters, which goes off and strikes Lauren Haley in the temple and kills her. But then Tezcatlipoca rewinds time so that she's not struck in order for him to be able to sacrifice her on an altar as he plans for all four of the people he's captured. And then we're also flashing back stateside where Senator Covington is informing Darnell that he's about to expose his covert affairs in Tropidor to the world, as well as Wormwood's involvement with the intention of dragging Darnell's entire department down. And Lisa Abernathy's boss at the television station is putting pressure on her to also expose Darnell because he's aware of her affair and her ties to the circumstances and basically says, if you don't come clean to the public, we're going to out you. And it's funny too, because Don Heck keeps reusing the same panel of a photograph of Waterman throwing around some of the Sandinistas or whatever they're called in this particular made up country. But the worst part is you get to page 15 and Wonder Woman's running up the stairs of the temple trying to save Major Griggs, but it's too late and a knife is plunged into his heart. And then on page 16, the exact same thing happens with slight changes in the perspective of the views of each panel. But essentially the dialogue is exactly the same and you do stop for a second to think, hey, wait, didn't I just read this? And then on page 17, essentially the same thing happens, but now it's a different set of perspectives on each panel. And Wonder Woman is now having thought balloons where she recognizes that she's caught in a loop in time and is trying to find a way of reversing the matter, but fails again and Greg's gets stabbed in the chest again. And then in page 18, we jump back over to Paradise Island and all the drama going on over there. And on the next page, we get a repeat of the previous pages. It's extremely frustrating. It's a trick you probably don't want to pull on your third issue of a run of a book. And I'm not sure how much experience Minnie Newell had at this point in time. But thankfully in this version, Diana is able to stall Tizcatlipoca long enough so that Griggs doesn't die. And in fact, time goes really wonky again. And for no really clear reason, time starts getting sucked into Tezcatlipoca like he's a temporal black hole but you don't really know why and so then Wonder Woman's like hey we gotta get out of here so she's calling to her four friends to come run to the invisible plane but unfortunately Lieutenant Haley's head wound comes back but apparently even though they said it was a lethal head wound previously now she's just a little bit dizzy they make it back to the plane instead of taking Haley to a hospital or you know taking everybody the heck out of the third world country they're stuck in in the midst of a civil war Dinah just drops him off in the middle of it it's a real mess of an issue does not lift one's hopes about this run getting any better based on the comments of letter writers I've not read enough of Dan Mishkin's run to have opinion on it pro or con this was also a fun letters column because Alan Gold based
basically spends the whole thing defending Don Heck as penciler and inker on the book. Sean Wesson has a whole list of inkers that he thinks could improve Don Heck's pencils and Gold isn't having it. Other people want to chuck them all together and offer a whole bunch of other pencilers and Gold's like, look, you've named 10 of the top artists working in the comics business. None of them is illustrating Wonder Woman because every one of them is busy with other projects and because Don Heck is doing just fine, thank you, as the regular artist. <laughs> yeah, but the book wasn't. All right, moving right along. The December 1985 cover dated Wonder Woman number 328. To everything a season. And on this issue, Benny Newell and Don Heck are aided by Paolo Marcos. Pinstore pages 8 through 17 and 21 through 23. I'm going to tell you up front too, this issue is a big step up from the previous two. It starts off back at the Pentagon with Steve Trevor arriving at the office of General Darnell, where Major Griggs, Etta Candy, and Lieutenant Haley are already waiting for the General to arrive. He's called a special meeting, something very important related to Trobador and Montez. They then have a flashback to the four of them back in Central America, finding all those bodies we talked about. Haley being left in the car with a rifle because she's still sopping up the blood from her head wound. Someone they refer to as Old Witch shows up and lures Griggs and that reporter guy to some sort of ancient Aztec throne where Montez sits comatose, eyes wide, mouth slack, and the witch explains that a trickster had devoured his soul, so that problem's been wrapped up. Then we cut to the bathroom with General Darnell, who's shaving himself, got a smile on his face. He's going to launch to a bunch of flashbacks to his rugged youth back in the 1940s and actually late 30s. Oh, for some reason it's drawn like it's the 50s, where, you know, he's dancing at the malt shop to some swing song when the news arrives that Pearl Harbor's been bombed, and so he decides he's going to join whatever the Air Force was called before it was officially the Air Force, and he's made it fun of for not being in the infantry because he doesn't want to get his feet dirty, apparently. And he goes on to become like a hot dog pilot, but because it's wartime, hot dogs seem to work out, especially because after he sees a few of his compatriots fall in battle, he gets real good at both surviving and defending his fellows. And as someone who's career-oriented, he just slowly works his way up to the rattle, becoming a general. But he was also a maverick. He took chances that other people wouldn't, including decided that he knew better than his own government in working with Montez. That's blown up in his face. So he basically knows his career is over, and he's bracing for that. Then we cut to Paradise Island, where Antiope, this curly redheaded Amazon who has been plotting against Hippolyta, has finally got all her ducks lined up and goes on the offensive. Starts out with a war of words, becomes an actual physical confrontation, but then it gets interrupted by the arrival of Demeter, who gives all the Amazons mystic armor and calls them to battle against the Shadow Wraiths, this being a crisis tie at all. Also, we find out that the Anti-Monitor has taken over Tartarus. I don't know if it's in this issue or the next. We find out that he's got Hades under heel now. And so basically, we've gone from this plot on it that just affects the politics on Paradise Island to monumental consequences that the entire Greek pantheon may be imperiled by the events of the Christ on Infinite Earths. Back at the Pentagon, Major Diana Prince shows up, but no sooner does she arrive than Hermes does and outs her as Wonder Woman in front of all of her co-workers. But then right behind Hermes is a group of weaponers of Quard. And so Hermes and Wonder Woman and to a much lesser degree, her co-workers at the Pentagon have to fight these guys off. Flashback to Paradise Island where Amazons are falling left and right, including Antiope. So hey, no more worrying about that subplot. Flashback to the Pentagon where Darnell and the Senator are in a meeting with the woman who's been secretly manipulating Darnell's downfall, Delilah, who was the daughter of a Chinese double agent who'd been working with the Japanese during World War II. Darnell had exposed him and gotten him killed. Delilah had survived and became sort of an underworld figure in the years since. And now she was using her manipulation skills to take down the man who was responsible for the destruction of her family. You can really tell that this is something that Minnie Newell was going to play out for a while, that she's just shoving into this issue and get it all done all at once. Flashback over to Paradise Island. Hermes and Wonder Woman arrive. They see that the Amazons are not doing well at all against the Shadow Wraiths. Since the mystic weapons aren't working, Wonder Woman thinks that, hey, if these are beings of pure death, that perhaps the Purple Ray of Healing as a life restorer would do them some serious damage, and it does. 
She blows him away. Hippolyta realizes, though, this is just a temporary reprieve, that everything's falling apart. The Amazons have turned on her. The gods seem to be falling. The whole universe is in disarray. And even her own daughter hates her. Hippolyta is just ready to give up and throw in the towel. Back to the Pentagon, Etta Candy produces a tape that Darnell had made for the group, which is his confession and his testimony that everything that happened with Montez was his doing, that none of his staffers or Wonder Woman had anything to do with that, that all the blame falls squarely on his shoulders. And then Darnell arrives at his offices, aware of the attacks that had happened with the weaponers, to face his men one final time, apparently. And then on the final page, we see the Greek gods realizing that their pooch is screwed, and this is going to be their final stand, apparently. I would have to say that this was definitely Mindy Newell's best issue of the three. It moves at a rather breakneck pace. There's just a ton of stuff that she's got to get taken care of in this issue, and I I enjoy how event-heavy it was. I'm glad that it wasn't drawn out. I suspect that it would have been if she'd been given that time. It's really lousy that the first ongoing writer of the Wonder Woman book only got three issues in, but I'm glad that she at least got her three issues. I don't know why she didn't write the last issue of Wonder Woman. I would like to think that she'd have done a good job based on this issue, though. In the letters page, Alan Gold is once again trying to swat away a lot of complaints. For instance, letter writer Jacques Viau, he's from Quebec, Uh, he was complaining about how Wonder Woman wasn't promoted very well, and Gold lists, hey look, there's a house ad in the works. Uh, She was featured prominently in the first DC sampler, and then she'd also hosted an ad for GI Combat, which his fellow had taken exception to, and Gold was like, hey look, we're both low-selling titles, we were doing each other a favor, you know? There's also talk about how great a Wonder Woman special or a Wonder Woman annual would be, and he said, hey, I'd I'd love to edit one of those, unfortunately the book doesn't sell that good, that's not going to happen. And from there we're on to the February 1986 cover dated Wonder Woman number 329, a universe besieged, 48-page final issue. Covers by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, it's gorgeous, it's one of my favorite Wonder Woman covers. She's basically standing, legs askew, one arm in the air with a fist. She's surrounded by Amazon warriors and other Greek mythological warriors, apparently leading them all into battle, which is exactly what happens in the issue, and it's freaking great. We open up in the underworld, where Ares and Hades have worked out a deal where they're going to work together to take out the Greek gods. Hades doesn't like Ares, he doesn't particularly want to work with him, but he's sort of been forced in this situation by the Anti-Monitor. Then we open up to a two-page spread of Red Skies and Fallen Amazons on Paradise Island. The story's called Of Gods and Men, A Final Adventure of Wonder Woman by writer Jerry Conway, artist Don Heck. And I have to say to Don Heck, while his art has basically been an eyesore for the last several issues and for quite some time prior to that, one of the main reasons why I've not read much of the Michigan run is like seemingly everybody else. I couldn't stand looking at latter-day Don Heck, but this particular issue seems to be one of the best examples. I guess he knew that he was on his way out. A lot of was asked of him in this story, a lot of battle action, uh, and I think that he either was really enjoying it or he just wanted to go out with a final hurrah. It's still rough. You can definitely tell it's Don Heck, but there's a lot more detail. He's having to draw these broad landscapes, and he's not skimping. It looks pretty cool relative to the abilities of Don Heck. We see Hippolyta continuing to be depressed and mope and crying over the lost love of her daughter, and how she doesn't really want to go on. Looking on is core. And look, I'm just going to read her entry from the Essential Wonder Woman Encyclopedia by Phil Jimenez and John Wells, because this is the only comic book she ever appeared in, or at least it's her first appearance, and given that this is the last issue of Wonder Woman, probably her last appearance. In Greek mythology, the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, and later the consort of Hades. She was more commonly known as Persephone, a young girl who was abducted by Hades and forced to live half her life with him in the grim caverns of the underworld. In the pre-crisis universe of Earth-1, Korra was married to Pluto II, the Lord of the Dead. When Pluto, as Hades, sided with the Anti-Monitor to take over Mount Olympus during the crisis, Kor joined forces with the Amazons of Paradise Island to stop him. The Anti-Monitor convinced Pluto that Kor hated him and had abandoned him. And I'll stop there because of spoilers. So anyway, Kor is looking on as the mother and daughter have their tete-a-tete, and she says that even 
though Hippolyta would just as soon be dead and done with this miserable life, that in fact death is no release, Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. It is a waiting without end, or so it was, till the underworld fell to the anti-monitor's dark legion. Now the damned are twice damned, and Hades, my husband, is enthralled to a shadow greater than his own. You'll find no succor there, Hippolyta. One woman continues. You've heard core, mother. You know she's right. Whatever happened between us, whatever feelings we have, we must deal with it here, in this life. You say you lost my love, but that isn't true. I love you, mother, more than ever now, when we face our greatest challenge. And if you truly love me, you'll rally the Amazons as only you can and lead us all into battle. Hippolyta asks, how did you become so strong? Where's the child I held upon my knee? Diana answers, I grew up, mother. I'm the woman you made me. I'm also the child who will always need your love. Help me. It's a great moment. I love it. However, in the background, fallen Amazons, black-eyed, well, more of a dark blue, open their eyes, rise up. We got zombie Amazons. My queen, our master requires your death. The first Amazon takes a swing at Hippolyta. Diana shatters her sword with her bracelet. Then she runs up and tackles two. Another one manages to wrap a net around her head briefly, but one woman just takes the net and swings the Amazon off to smack against the hill. All this is silent. It's a nice, well-done, well-choreographed action sequence. Again, I'm wondering where this Don Heck had been previously because the action's real smooth here. It's clear. It's dynamic. It's attractive to the eye. I'm enjoying this a lot. Here comes another silent page as one of the fallen Amazons grabs at Diana's ankle. One woman just kicks her off, flips her around, looks cool. A couple of Amazons come around, grab one woman by her bracelets. She just smashes their heads together. And what's great about it too is one woman's got a good posture. You can see how the physics of that would work. They don't look like cardboard people that are being smashed together. It looks like she's flung these undead bodies around. But speaking around, Diana's soon surrounded by zombie Amazons, as her mother points out. Things look like they're maybe going to get real, but then Kor speaks up. Enough. Warriors of the underworld, hear the voice of your mistress. I tell you, cease his attack. Return to your place of memories and yearning. Your time in the world of possibilities is over. Leave the darkness nevermore. And the zombie Amazons start collapsing. Kor recognizes that this has to be her husband's doing, which means everybody needs to get together and head the heck up to Mount Olympus, home of the gods, because the only way of dealing with this is to confront it head on. Back to Washington, D.C. Thunder, lightning, hurricane force winds, people screaming and running from the destruction around them. In a crevasse, Lieutenant Lauren Haley hangs from a rope, being held off to the side by Steve Trevor, calling to her, don't let go, for God's sake, Lieutenant, you've got to hang on. She responds, Colonel Trevor, I, I can't. Oh God, my fingers are so bloody, they're slipping on the rope. I can't hold on. And then she screams, falling to her death in a pit of fire that looks like hell itself has opened up. Trevor calls her name as the rope snaps and he falls backwards. His tug of war with the fate's over with. Trevor fears shell-shocked as Etta Candy and her nerdy boyfriend, whose name I can't bother to remember, I think it's Harold, show up. He explains what happened, and then three issues into her existence, nobody ever talks about Lauren Haley again. But hey, suddenly, randomly, the invisible plane shows up, lands, Steve's angel is back. Again, silent panels, they run toward each other, they embrace against the red skies and the lightning and the smoke and the dust. In a half-splash, they kiss, and it actually kind of looks a little like Jim Aparo. In fact, I I do wonder if there was maybe some pitch-hitting on the inks on this. Sometimes the pages look a little too good, there's some that kind of remind me of Klaus Janssen. I'm just saying, I don't know for a fact, but uh, X game was almost a little too on point at times in this issue. So anyway, second half of the page, Etta and her boyfriend are still looking on and Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor are still kissing. Steve says, you are an angel. Wonder Woman replies, Steve, we've been fools for too long, playing at love like children when life is so short. If we ever have the chance again, I want us to seal our love as man and woman. But you see, Steve, the entire world's ending, so we may not have that chance. Oh, and the nerdy guy quotes Paradise Lost. I'm enjoying how big and dramatic 
like all this is so far, but quoting Milton just a little too far, guys. Sorry. Diane and Steve climb onto the invisible jet and shoot off toward Mount Olympus. And then, oh, Howard. His name is Howard. Ed is like, do you believe in premonitions? Because I have a feeling I'm never going to see those two again. But I'm not sad because somehow, no matter what happens, I think they have a chance to be happy together at last. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, uh, there's a mortal Amazon named Atalanta who had a, a group of non-immortal Amazons who were living in South America and they actually had children, although there weren't any guys around. They never explained how all these babies came up and why there weren't any male babies. That's Azarello territory. We're not going to get into that. Skip right over that. Point is, we've got regular Amazons and we've got mortal Amazons and Diana's trying to rally all those forces. But in the meantime, they're flying into Mount Olympus. Giant statue attacks them. Diana and Steve go flying out of the plane. Diana grabs the plane and then grabs Steve. Then she lets go, grabs her lasso, whips it around. As she's falling, the statue says, the choice is simple, mortal man. Swear allegiance to Ares or die. And one woman replies, if you don't mind, I chose a third path, defiance. She lassos the statue around the neck. Steve asks, how did you do that? Years of practice. Of course, it helps if you're born on Amazon. Then as Diana uses the statue to slow her and Steve's descent until they both land onto a building, Diana then jerks the statue by the neck and sends it crashing into pieces onto the ground. But then along come Ares and Hades, riding in command of an army of the dead. These are the shades of legend, warriors whose names are hallowed on the epics of Homer, men who fought with fire and fury for blood and honor and destiny. Agamemnon, leader of the Achaean Greeks at Troy. Achilles, finest warrior of any age. Odysseus, brilliant tactician, favorite of Athena, wanderer of ancient seas. Ajax, giant among men, simple and loyal. They are here, they in tens of thousands as noble and true, raised from shadow to battle once more for gods, against gods, in the name of hatred and ambition. And if they could feel these shadows that once were men, what would they feel? Regret? Resentment that their well-earned rest has been rudely broken? Rage? We may never know, for their long-dead voices are silent, and their eyes reflect only the deep darkness of the grave. Hades was here to talk smack and kick ass, and he was all out of ass. But he does manage to shoot at like a sword mystical energy beam at Wonder Woman, and Steve gets to pull her away from it real quick, just so that he doesn't appear to be completely useless. But hey, guess what? Diana calls out, Sisters and cousins, hola! For Olympus and Paradise Island, strike! And then the Amazons come rushing in, shouting, hola, hola, hola! All the Amazons have a pincer attack. They've already encircled Ares and his undead men. They've proven the Amazons' tactical superiority to Ares. Core appears behind Steve Trevor and Wonder Woman, noting, you were right, Diana. The mortal warriors of Atalanta left their rain-forced home most willingly to fight beside their sister Amazons in this time of need. Core had brought them. They and your sisters from Paradise Island. Now at last, the breach between mortal and immortal Amazon is healed by honor. From this hour forth, there is but one Amazon family, one sisterhood, one dream. Steve Trevor, who had died and reborn repeatedly, always returning to his lady love, his angel. Wonder Woman notes, our two lives have been entwined by fate since before the world was born. Whatever happens, now or in the future, will be together till the end of the time. They kiss. Diana turns and calls, Hola! And joins the battle. And then there's this great big two-page spread where Diana is tossing around undead zombies and their Amazon sisters are fighting them. And Steve is actually being useful too. He's got an idea uh, based on something that Ares had said of where the Greek gods have gone to because none of them are in this battle. Forgot to mention that. Sorry. Okay, now I can finish reading Kor's entry in the encyclopedia. The Anti-Monitor convinced Pluto that Kor hated him and had abandoned him. But the queen of the underworld found the god and once more pledged her love and fidelity. Convinced by his wife to break his pact with the Anti-Monitor, Pluto used his power to return Mars's undead army to the underworld and vanished with Kor to realms unknown. Meanwhile, Ares calls out to Wonder Woman, Amazon, turn, meet your destiny. I had a feeling it would come to this. You hated my 
mother. Tricked Hercules into betraying her centuries ago, and you've always hated me. Why? Because I'm a warrior who refuses the glory in war? Enough talk! Fight now! To the finish! They fight, grunting but wordless, for there is nothing left to say. Neither will be satisfied with less than total victory. For one, victory means crushing his enemies. For the other, victory means hope and love. Against such power, even a god may not long prevail. You hear, Ares? Your ally has abandoned you. You have no army. You have no war. It's over. I still hold the gods, Amazon. They are my hostages. Not even Hades knows where I've imprisoned them. Only I have that knowledge. You have nothing, Ares, but your own brittle hate. And then Wonder Woman proceeds to punch his battle axe and shatter it. And what does she do this with? Her bare hands, because she's freaking Wonder Woman. She doesn't need a freaking sword. She's the destroyer of swords. She's the destroyer of axes. She is a warrior for peace. She is the breaker of the arms of the men who would depress and destroy the world. Or, as Gary Conway puts it in the caption, the axe breaks with a sound like a crack of thunder, shattering hopes, dreams, and bitter fantasies, and it is echoed an instant later by another sound, a creak of sliding marble, a wild and triumphant yell. She knows that yell is the only warning she needs. Her dive carries her to safety. Ares is not so quick, not so fortunate. You see, Stephen figured out that the giant statues of the Greek gods that were surrounding the battlefield were the actual Greek gods based on words that Ares had said, and so he sent one of those statues crumbling down, crushing Ares, and releasing Zeus. Zeus then proceeded to free the rest of the Greek gods, but they still had to gird themselves against the final darkness as the crisis of infinite earth still bared down upon them. Red skies on the waiting. But before this ultimate combat, Diana turns to Steve and says, You remember what I said to you before we left Washington? I want to seal our love, now and forever, in the eyes of the gods and in the eyes of my Amazon sisters. Even after what Zeus just said, we could all be gone tomorrow. Hasn't that always been true? Haven't we always faced an uncertain future every day of our lives? What's different about this? Hey Zeus, how are you at performing marriages? Mother, be happy for me. I love him, and I love you. Hippolyta responds, no more than I love you, daughter, daughter of my heart, my only child, my dearest Diana. The skies above Olympus are clear now, as if a passing storm had paused, retreating for a time before gathering its forces anew, and the day is hushed, save for one rich voice, echoing with depth of wisdom and power unimaginable by mortal man. Zeus stands before a wedding procession and pronounces Princess Diana and Steve Trevor, husband and wife. Silently, though, it's a silent panel. I'm, I'm just I'm painting a word picture. Cut to an exterior and then cut into a uh, bedroom where Steve's running around in a little white towel and Diana's in a negligee. No secret what's happened here. Can't sleep. I had a dream and I, after this is over, walking in the sunlight in a golden field with our child, all of us together, it was a lovely dream. Do you believe in destiny, my darling? I do. Our two lives have been entwined by fate since before the world was born. Whatever happens, now or in the future, we'll be together till the end of time. The couple embrace and then one final kiss in the moonlight and a story dedicated to the memory of Dr. Charles Moulton. Next month, in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, one one faces her greatest final challenge. Nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing. Cut to Alan Gold's commentary in the Wonder Words letter column. And so it ends, for the moment. In a few weeks, the final issue of DC's stupendous maxi-series, Christ on Infinite Earths, will be on sale. It will feature Diana, Princess of Paradise Island, in the most dramatic adventure of her life. Believe me, this is not just a lot of hot air hooey, and it's not exactly what you may be dreading either, so settle down. After the crisis, well, as the blurb bringers have it, nothing will ever be quite the same again, really. To tell the whole story, early next year, if all goes according to schedule, I'll be turning over the editorial reins to Janice Race, who's ready, willing, and eminently able to set the team galloping ahead. She's been working for several months already, as a matter of fact, with a bright new writer named Greg Potter. Actually, he's not all that new, as those of you who follow his maxi-series, Gem Son of Saturn, can attest. Anyway, they have plenty of interesting modifications in store for you. But don't you worry, this isn't going to be just a turner on her head and spin her around fix that improves nothing. They're just trying to make a Wonder Woman series that's right for the post-crisis DC universe. In the meantime, there's a treat in store for you between this issue of Wonder Woman and Greg's first one. You may be familiar with a writer-artist named Trina Robbins. She's a co-author of Women in the Comics, and there is no greater fan of Wonder Woman. So one day I had a brainstorm, and I asked her whether she'd like to consider doing a 
four-issue miniseries for the Princess of Power. Would I, she shouted. Let's just put it this way. My acclaimed powers of persuasion weren't even given a quiz, let alone a full-fledged test. To make a long story a bit shorter, she's already begun working on the series as I write this, and her first issue should be out shortly after the end of the crisis. Gold also congratulated Jerry Conway and Don Heck on a great issue. I wholeheartedly agree this was such fun. It was a, a really rousing send-off for Wonder Woman. Jerry Conway had written the character extensively in the 1970s, but went away for a while. I think he was a better writer in the 1980s than he had been in the 70s. I thoroughly enjoyed this issue. It reminded me a lot of the great Amazon battle that Mike Sikowski had done in the 1960s. You know, Wonder Woman came off wonderful. You had this loving relationship between Diana and Steve Schoen. Most of the supporting cast got a good send-off. The Amazons got to have a great big battle and be shown as great tacticians and be shown in a very positive light, recognizing that they have their differences and they have their issues, but ultimately coming together and fighting for a common good. This was absolutely the best possible double-sized finale that could come from the pen of Don Heck. I think these guys, 30-odd years later, still have something to be proud of in this book. Excerpt from Amazing Heroes Preview Special Number 2, 1986. The Legend of Wonder Woman. Appearances can be deceiving. When last we saw her, Wonder Woman had been turned back into clay as a result of the Chrysler Infinite Earths. She has not, however, gone the way of Supergirl and the Flash. The Amazing Amazon will be very much in evidence in the first part of 1986 in a four-part miniseries titled The Legend of Wonder Woman. According to editor Alan Gold, Legend is actually a flashback story, springing directly from the crisis. It is what Gold calls one last adventure, both fun and serious, affectionate and nostalgic, set in an indeterminate time in Wonder Woman's past. The tale features the return of Atomia, queen of the subatomic world. It will be crafted by Kurt Busiek and Trina Robbins in strict homage to the styles of William Moulton Marston and Harry G. Peter, the creators of Wonder Woman, who lent their unique styles to the first 15 years of the feature. The Legend of Wonder Woman will debut in January. All right, I brought up Wonder Worlds a lot in the preceding podcast, so uh, we're going to jump right into that. We received Facebook likes from Keith G. Baker, Ali Bats, and Ryan Daly. And on episode two, we had Facebook likes from Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics Blog, and uh, Michael Siskoid Albert of the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and Oh Hot Moo or Not. We got a Tumblr like from Squid Fiction, and various Twitter ups from Andrew in Belfast, Dr. Ange, Between the Pages, Brian Hackney, Captain Marvel. 75, Charlie Niemeyer, Coffee and Comics Blog, Craig 101, Craig Lane, DCU Movie Page, Dr. G Nerdologist, Ed Moore and Ed Moore Jr., Eli at Ilparin, Firestorm Fan, Hicks, Is There 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 Podcast, John D. Knoll, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Luke Dobb, Martin Gray, Michael Bailey Podcasts, Oscar Blue Devil, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Straight Out of Gallifrey Podcast, Synodalia Scarecrow, and Trekker Talk. Speaking of Trekker Talk, they spoke of episode Episode three. Looking forward to this fun time this morning. Listening to the latest episode and threw out a picture with promotion, which is always appreciated. Siskoid wrote, "I'll have Wonder Woman content for you too next Tuesday." He was speaking of his first strike, the Invasion podcast, where he covered Wonder Woman issue twenty five or twenty six, whichever one was the tie in first tie in to the Invasion podcast. It was a really good episode. I recommend checking it out. As a matter of fact, if I remember, I'm going to throw a link up on the blog. You can check that out. Doctor Ange wrote, "I think at times DC has tried to recreate a military field to Diana without." putting her in the army. So you see Diana working with Nemesis in the DEO. She wasn't actually in the DEO. It was a different alphabet soup company. I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but it wasn't the DEO. Uh, or some other black ops group, which would, that would apply to that. But this is as Diana and not Wonder Woman. In this device of America, I fear that for everyone saying support the troops, someone is saying the military is evil. Of course, a character like Diana could try to bridge that division, acting as a warrior for peace, using violence as a last resort. The problem is, as you say, DC has embraced the this is Sparta sort 
sword-wielding Diana, forgetting the peaceful submission aspect of her origins. It is a bummer. As for Veronica Kale, she was clearly a Luther archetype, so she is rather forgettable. I did like the idea that despite her wealth and fame, she continued to wear her mother's fake pearls to remind her of her background. You know, they did something somewhat similar, but not really to that in Agent Carter Season 2, which was vastly superior to Season 1 if you were put off by that. Go check out Agent Carter Season 2. I might try to defend David Kelly's decision for her to be the big bad in the same way Max Lord was a big bad on Supergirl, uh, except that if we ever do a podcast about Supergirl together, I'm going to trash the version of Max Lord that appears on the Supergirl show. Just saying. For the mainstream audience, they need that sort of character to lean on. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Uh, Martin Gray wrote, I've not seen the most recent TV show. I hear it wasn't very good. I really ought to cover that on a podcast episode in the future. Anyway, the idea of Veronica Kale being on it doesn't excite me. She was pants. Just another jealous bore. Pants equals rubbish. Rubbish equals garbage. I don't know if he put the translation in there if I did, but there you go. Diana has so many seriously bizarre villains that a Lady Lex doesn't cut it. Bring on the Blue Snowman or Giganta and Gorilla Gal mode. Here, here. Yep, WW77 has gone down the tubes, and so did Digital Sensation Comics. How many stories do you need about Diana befriending kids or telling us that you don't have to be an American to be okay or fighting Batman villains? Feel free to pack in the Wonder Woman 77 reviews based on this episode so far I have, and skip randomly through Diana's pre-crisis career. This one was kind of random. Maybe, or I might have an agenda. We'll get back to that. The material is so much more fun, it compliments your witty ways. Thank you. I think you're a bit confused on Carol Danvers. She wasn't created as a fighter pilot in the 70s. She debuted as a military security chief in the 70s in the Captain Marvel book. When she was repurposed as Miss Marvel in the 70s, she left the military to be a magazine editor. The fighter pilot bit never really showed up until she got that horrible warbird name. And we've been stuck with her as a hard-nosed military woman ever since. Slight correction on Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Carol Danvers actually debuted in 1968 because she was in the original Captain Marvel stories from the Marvel Superheroes comic book, which I read and I don't recommend. They're not very good. I only vaguely remember them and I don't have a lot of first-hand experience with Carol Danvers. It's something I want to try to correct as her movie approaches. I mostly know the character through her 1980s appearances in Avengers comics and then in her late 90s, early 2000s period under Kurt Busiek, which is your right when they really started to push the whole military pilot angle. I guess they did to Carol Danvers something like what they did with John Stewart. And if there was anything similar to that, then I could see why you'd be very disappointed in that choice. Thank Martin for the corrections. And uh, finally, Darren Sutherland writes, we both enjoyed your latest episode of Diana Prince, Wonder Woman. Nice coverage of both the stories from the Wonder Woman 77 series in issue 240 as a tie-in to Diana's history in the military. We've particularly liked the Wonder Woman 77 series. He's speaking of him and his wife, Ruth, who is his co-host on the Trekker Talk podcast, the Warlord Worlds podcast, and the Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. Got the trifecta. We've particularly liked the Wonder Woman 77 series and have been reading it as it's released in digital installments. I'm a little late. I still buy the physical comics and hope to see it continue in the near future. Uh, issue 4 is upcoming. I'm going to get out ahead of that, though. Uh, very happy to hear your plans for other stories to cover in the future. We'll be listening. Thank you, Sutherlands. We, I appreciate it, and I hope I continue to entertain, which is uh, two important announcements for this episode. One is that, as I mentioned to the Fire and Water Podcast Network recently, who kept promoting this show, even though new episodes only dropped between seasonally and bi-yearly, depending on when I got around to it, there is another Wonder Woman podcast that is active. It is called Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace, and it is hosted by an actual woman who unfortunately does not put her name on the website. So I'm just going to call her for now. So she's putting out episodes monthly. She is four deep so far. I believe five is either coming at some point after I'm recording this or for all I know, it might be six. I'm not sure how far out this is going to be from recording to being released. And what this is, it's a uh, build as a podcast that explores the history of Wonder Woman on page and screen. And it is an indexing show. And 
on this show, she covers one Golden Age story, and she's doing that chronologically. So she starts with All-Star Comics number eight and progresses to Sensation Comics number one and so forth. Then she covers one issue from the modern age, meaning the post-Crisis Wonder Woman series done by Greg Potter and George Perez. Emphasis on George Perez, especially after the first few issues. And then she does one issue of the New 52 series by Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang. And then she does coverage of one episode of the Wonder Woman television series, again in chronological order, beginning with the pilot for the all-new original Wonder Woman from, uh, what was it, 76, 77? I think it was 75? Mid-70s. And obviously I wish more power to her, not just because I've listened to all the episodes available to date and enjoyed them, but also because I'm hugely relieved that I do not have to do an indexing show. Because here's the skinny folks, I've been releasing these episodes every now and again, usually coordinating them with my having read the release of the physical copies of the Wonder Woman 77 comics. I've been doing this just to keep Wonder Woman stuff uh, podcasting related out there in anticipation of celebrating Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary, the exact date of which is October 25th of this year. I have been doing this because my intention was always to wrap up my work on the Martian Manhunter's 60th anniversary, which I never committed enough time and effort to, but the fact remains that in October of 2017, after the end of Wonder Woman's 75th anniversary, I'll have gone right back to doing Marshmander stuff and will probably continue to do so until I die or nobody cares anymore. And I'm going to be doing a really nice big celebration for John Jones throughout the month of September for his 61st anniversary celebration, especially because I have a whole backlog of stuff that I meant to do on the 16th anniversary and then get done. So September is going to be for John Jones for the most part. But then starting at the end of October, you're going to start seeing Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast episodes a lot more frequently. How much more frequently? I don't know yet. Ideally, it would be Wonder Woman weekly, but I have not proven to be capable of doing stuff like that. But what I'm going to try to do is a little bit more of a stream of consciousness type of show. This is sort of a prelude to that, where I've read some comics this evening, and then I talk about them with some supplemental material that I also had handy, and I just let it roll out as it comes, and then I truncate the silences, and uh, you have an episode. So as little editing as possible, and very opinion-based, which again is one of the reasons why I'm really grateful that the one Woman Warrior for Peace podcast exists because my original plan with this podcast was to cover the post-crisis Wonder Woman comics issue by issue and most likely I was also going to cover the Golden Age stories if not story by story issue by issue I was trying to figure out if I was going to try to synchronize the post-crisis series with the actual Wonder Woman titled stories and then do a bunch of sensation comics before we got to the Wonder Woman stuff I hadn't figured out how I was going to do it even though I've been planning this for a couple of years now and the truth is I never wanted to do it I don't like dealing with indexing. I tried to do it as a blogger. I never enjoyed it. It was always a drag. It killed a lot of my interest in blogging. I expected if I had tried to do it in podcasting more, it would have killed my interest in that too, except for the first episode that's going to be released for the 75th anniversary. The plan is to cover a bunch of the stuff that she already covered in her first episode, but to do it differently. And then from that point onward, my plan is to continue to cover the post-crisis series, but rather than doing it on an issue-by-issue basis and detailing the events of the comics, it'd be more like a commentary on story art. So, for instance, I believe that the first story arc of that series ran for something like five issues, six issues maybe. So, covering that as one episode, as my opinion and an overview, plus other additional materials. That way, there isn't too much crossover between what is being covered in the Warrior for Peace podcast and what's being covered here. And we have different styles of presentation. So, I I think that if you're a Wonder Woman fan, we'll complement each other and uh, we'll be stronger together. And I will definitely support our sister podcast. But, I will also be covering a bunch of other material 
material, specifically stuff that isn't going to be caught in that particular net. Definitely want to do a lot more silver and bronze age material. And also I read a fair amount of the post one year later Wonder Woman stories as well. Didn't really enjoy them, but I'd like to talk about my lack of enjoyment. So we'll get to those also. Point being, I have no shortage of material. And if I can just open my mouth and get this stuff done on a regular basis, we can make Wonder Woman Weekly happen. And if we don't, maybe we can do a bi-weekly, at least monthly for the 75th anniversary year. So all you guys who've been giving me flack, like Ryan Daly on his Secret Origins podcast, who called this podcast a myth, even though he did that only a mere month and a half after the previous episode had come out, which is actually a very short amount of time based on our previous scheduling. Ha! In your face, Count Drunkula. So as you can see with this episode, the plan is not to bury Princess Diana, but to set up her resurrection post-crisis. I'll get that worked out and I'll get back with you. Hola! Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at email of Diablo at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at Commander Blanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.